five, four, three, two, one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA. We fight for direct marketing and direct mail every day. And we've got some advanced class stuff today, if you hang on, from Stephen Yu. Excellent stuff, and uh, I'll add on my own spin as usual. But before we get to the advanced stuff, Arby's offers a burger for the first time in its history. It chided the burger companies for decades, and now it's caved in. Uh, and uh, it's finally putting a burger. It's a Wagyu Steakhouse uh, limited edition. It's 50% bigger than the quarter pounder served up by McDonald's. We're going to talk about that in a second. And, and it's uh, made, instead of focusing on making billions of mediocre burgers, we're taking a stance on high-quality meat that des de deserves to be cooked properly. So Arby's is cooking the burgers up sous-vide-style, under vacuum, and uh, it's supposed to give you a juicy, tender, with a slight pink center. And I can tell you, after listening to the reviews, that it did have a sort of a medium rare look to it, which is a really impressive and difficult to deliver in fast food. So that part's impressive. But, you know, here's the funny part is that they mention that it's 50% bigger than a, than a quarter pounder. And some of you advertising historians will remember that um, A&W, in the 80s came out with a third pound burger which is about what this is maybe it's even it's more like a half pound burger well 50 percent bigger if you went from if you went from a quarter pounder to a third pound that would add another quarter of a pound or something i don't know we're not going to figure out the math right now but but the arby's is 50 percent bigger so a and w thought well we'll do a third pound bigger and in blind taste tests, it just crushed the McDonald's burger, okay? So what happened? Nobody bought it. Why? They said, why should we pay the same amount for a third of a pound when we can get a quarter pound at McDonald's? <laughs> You're overcharging us. People thought a third of a pound was less than a quarter of a pound after all, three is less than four. Yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, the consumer is always right. But the funny, the funniest part that I didn't know about from this article was McDonald's tried their own version of a bigger burger, the Angus Third Pounder, in 2007 and also in 2015, the Sirloin Third Pounder. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Just last year, this was written in 2017, but the mighty quarter pounder remains. And I like the, I like the McDouble, yeah, I always call it the McDouble, because that's about like a quarter pounder, but it's less expensive. It was on the dollar menu for years. Anyway, so the point is that making a better burger doesn't necessarily beat the competition. And in fact, in the taste tests, the the Arby's, you know, everybody gave them gave them points for better beef, but better beef doesn't necessarily taste that much different than bad beef. <laughs> Who knows what McDonald's puts in their in their burger? But it's you know, it's not it's the seasoning and other things that make it in a burger that make it work. And but the reviewers were pretty uniform in saying that. 
it wasn't that different. And uh, and one guy said he liked the quarter pounder better. He said this was kind of tasteless. It tasted like salt and pepper was on it. So you can judge for yourself. I'm happy to, happy to listen for feedback. Okay, here's an article by Bob Bly. Uh, and Bob and I, Robert Bly, have worked on some stuff together. So, you know, I know he's legit. He said that a recent A&I business marketing smart brief, when I, when I clicked that link, it just went to the A&A marketing.org. So that's not the smart brief. I'd like, I'd like to know what, what the article was he was referring. But he said a Madison Avenue creative director said an important step in eliminating B-to-boring stereotype is to earn the attention of audiences by creating interesting content. And Bob rightly asks, interesting to whom? Uh, so many advertising types are not the target audience. Always dangerous. You have to basically think about what the audience wants, as we saw with the burger. And frequently, they don't even understand the product or the problem it solves at all. Absolutely. You know, I was in imprinted merchandise, and I went up to Land's End. They hired me to help them with their B2B uh, imprinted merchandise catalog launch. And I explained to them that, uh, I mean, I gave them like 10 points they had to do. And years later, I went up there again to see Zentmeyer, Dave Zentmeyer, who was running it. And by then, it was like a $180 million division. And he had the 10 points up on a poster on the wall. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, I said to him, you know, the buyer in business to business doesn't care how good the shirt is. The buyer wants to get points for getting a reliable source and getting a shirt the customers are going to be happy about and wear. The buyer is interested in not the not the fabric, not, you know, it's like your customers will like this shirt and buy more stuff from you. And he looked at me with it. He said, business to business sure is different. Anyway, so readers of B2B copy are often not the same as lay folks. Or they're the same, but they have a different agenda. You know, the buyer of imprinted merchandise wants something fast for the trade show. So I said to him, have your own inventory. Get your own inventory so that you can turn it around fast. If you can do that, you will dominate the industry because everybody knows Land's End is decent, right? It's not it's not Versace or something, but it's, you know, good stuff. So anyway, B2B buying is often a considered purchase, right? So save that logo tape once you get it done and they'll come back to you, which is a sharp contrast to many consumer purchases, which are basically impulse buys. You know, it's different when you want 300 shirts from wanting a shirt okay so his friend bob's friend made acid resistant bricks okay and the bricks were would line the sulfur baths probably for things like uh electro uh electrolytic plating i think that's the word for it electrolytic anyway you know they put anyway they do them in sulfur baths i i had a <laughs> I had a sulfur bath that was overheating once that I had to fix the temperature control for. I didn't really know what I was doing, and I'd never worked on pneumatic controls, and I hear this hissing sound. 
Then I thought, oh yeah, this is pneumatic. It's supposed to do that. I was really nervous. Nothing like starting off on a huge swimming pool of acid. But anyway, the headline that won was handling sulfuric acid. And you might find, which I think is great, because it, well, it's not clear that it was tested. It said it outperformed all previous ads. Now, was there a control? With most ads, you can do an A-B split. But anyway, handling sulfuric acid sounds dull and pedantic and totally lacking in emotional appeal. Now, you might have had sulfuric acid spill or something like that. You get a little more excitement and emotion. But I like the sulfuric acid. Oh, my gosh. I can think of a bunch of headlines to test. But anyway, the engineer, the, 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 uh, engineers in sulfuric acid plants responded in droves. Okay? And the headline implied that the engineer would learn something, that it was an informative article, not just buy our bricks. And so handling sulfuric acid feels like content marketing, not sales copy. So you have to be careful what you think is boring because you have to remember boring is in the eye of the beholder. And usually, you know, the creative guys are, are have their own. They want to win awards. <laughs> and I've told that story before. Okay, here's the article I wanted to get to. Going Beyond Modeling to Find New Customer Acquisition Targets by Stephen Yu. This is... This is a brilliant article, and it, it speaks to the issue of look-alike modeling. We all hear, well, I mean, when I talk to people, they say, well, we want look-alike modeling, look-alike, looking-alike whom, whom, right? Well, our customers. Well, as I explained to the Hudson Bay Company back in the 90s, uh, the customer that buys... <laughs> A trip to Anchorage is not the same as the trip to a customer that buys a trip to Ankara, which is in Turkey. It's the capital of Turkey, I believe. Anyway, and the and the customer that buys a, a a gas station card or uses his gas station card is not the same as someone who's buying a Hudson Bay blanket. I said you don't need a, a model for the best customers. You need you need a variety of models. And they looked at me, you need a system that builds models. And that's what we did back in the 90s. As far as I know, we were the first people in the world to apply what Stephen Yu is talking about here, right? So uh, finding prospects who look like your customers but aren't your, your customers is a, a great use of modeling. But modeling is about, is about mimicking your target group. So if you don't carefully define your target group, you're in a lot of trouble. The art of targeting in the multiverse. And what he means by that is where there's multiple, you have multiple sub-targets, okay? And so, like Land's End had the business-to-business -business component, okay? Would you just use random samples of your customers as a target? No. So there's high-value customers. And, you know, for, for Cabela's, when we started modeling their mailings, one of the first things we spotted was that there was a segment of 5,000 customers at, at the very top of the model that, that actually produced more than 100% response. Wow. And, when, and so we pulled the names and looked at them, and they were, they, were, they were outfitters and lodges and resorts for hunting and fishing. And we realized that these were businesses, not consumers. Same thing with Musician's Friend. When we found the people that bought the 
the $50 guitar pick or whatever. Maybe it was a $20 guitar pick. But most people buy, you know, 10 for $10 or something, guitar picks. And so we found that they were the business to business. When we when we looked at, at uh, pet supplies, we found that some of the pet groomers were buying $300 sets of scissors, whereas most were buying um, starter kits. And we found out that there were different markets. Or Baseball Express, I called them up and I said, who are the people buying these pitching machines for $4,000? <laughs> they said, oh, leagues, and I still can't, it's so funny. I said, you know, do you ever consider business to business? They said, no, we're strictly consumer. I said, well, who's buying these pitching machines? They said, oh, leagues and colleges and even major league teams. I said, did you ever think that's more of a business to business purchase? They said, no, we're strictly consumer. <laughs> well, anyway, so then we started modeling other stuff that got bought along with those. And we found that line chalk or rosin bags for pitchers to use, those very inexpensive pit, uh, purchases meant that there was a baseball diamond, a serious baseball diamond. You know, when we played ball in our backyard, we just threw out boards for the bases and we didn't have any line chalk. I can tell you that. And we sure didn't have rosin bags because we were just tossing the ball in there. So often there are things hidden in your customer file. And if you have a modeling system that spots the spots the 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 anomalies that spots the surprises then you have something to work with so we helped cabela's develop that big thick book that they started mailing to their business and super customers okay so high value customers can be a whole new business we helped pet edge grow 20 percent in a recession they had been flat for years and then 20 percent the next year and 20 percent the next year all because we spotted this completely new market. Baseball Express, we helped grow from 5 million in sales to 50 million in sales. And that's because we can spot these sub-targets. And sub-targets may be an entire new business for you, right? Okay, and so there's also high-value customers that don't purchase often. So Cabela's was mailing to their, mailing to their, their buyers 12 times a year for a year, and then they'd stop. And when I went around to sporting goods stores and asked people if they'd heard of Cabela's, they said, I used to get their catalog. I bet 40 people in a row said, I used to get their catalog. And the reason was because they were so committed to recency that they just would stop. And so first off, we found that there was hunting and fishing were completely different, um, that, that, that that was more important than recency. And then we started looking at people who had bought high-ticket items like muzzleloaders. You can, did you know you can buy a muzzleloader rifle through the mail? <laughs> Most people don't, but you can't. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a slow-motion gun. But anyway, we found that there was often a dormant period. We speculated because mobile homes, percentage of mobile homes was a, was a, one of the really good variables we, we discovered for Cabela's. Um, but we've suspected that, 
that, you know, the muzzleloader came to the house and the wife said, we need a new refrigerator. What are you buying from Cabela's again? And we found that after about four years, when the divorce was finalized and they were back in the mobile home, uh, they could buy from Cabela's again. <laughs> and we had almost exactly the same thing happen with, uh, with Musician's Friend when they bought a high-ticket guitar. So, excellent target. This is such a great article. This is a great article, Stephen. Okay? High-frequency customers who are not big spenders. We did an entire an entire suite of variables just to target the off-price buyer. You know, the, the high-frequency, but almost always likes to buy on sale. And we mail them the sale book, and we stop mailing the sale book to the high-value customers who weren't worried about sale price. They were business-to-business. Business. It wasn't their money they were spending. You know, they were, they were managing the band for Neil Diamond or somebody, right? Okay, new customers. Excellent. How long do you mail the new customers? If they're digitally acquired, you might not mail them at all, right? That was a big breakthrough, made a lot of money for uh, one of the oldest catalogers in America just recently. Okay, recent or active customers, keep them going. Dormant or inactive. All of these are excellent, excellent ideas. And with mail, we can build, we, we have the data set. We have the buyers who, you know, most companies only have buyers. But we know who got mailed, who saw the ad, who saw the ma mailing, and didn't buy. And so we have a, we have a much better labeled data set for mailing, uh, with mailing. Okay, so most of the time, their behavior and geodemographic profiles are vastly different. This is the, this is the bedrock foundation for personalization, for why the, the fishing catalog and the hunting catalog should be different, but should also go to different people. It's not that simple, I have to say. Musician's friend, we tried <laughs> repeatedly for about two years to get the drummers and the guitar players sorted out. We could see the difference, but when we mailed them different books, they didn't, they didn't do what we expected. Okay, so don't ignore your customer differences, and don't just listen to a modeling company that says, oh, yeah, we'll just rank your customers, and we'll mail them that way. Multiple models are the secret. Different targets call for different models. When we first started doing Cabela's, they went around and started getting quotes from other modeling companies, and all of them told, and I, I, you know, big name, big name companies, and all of them said, "Why would you need, why would you need ten models a year?" For 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 musicians, friend, we ended up doing something like forty models a year, Dove, nested conditionals, and prioritizing one model above another and letting people drop down to the to the more generic catalog at the bottom it all made money but it was an enormous amount of work so you got to be careful with that too but you are operating in multiple universes you need multiple models because model algorithms are nothing but equation ec, equational expressions of differences between target and comparison groups remember the label data set okay in general i expect i i suspect or i suggest two to three different types of models in the initial test stages and we can help you with that the world does not stay the same rapid economic changes so for hamaker schlemmer when the covid lockdown started their business was booming but they were trying to figure out if the new customers coming in were similar to their traditional old-time customers 
And we actually found out that they were a little younger and a little more affluent. Does that mean that they're going to hold up on lifetime value? Maybe not. Don't know. It's harder to say. You know, It's one of those things that first you have to see if they are different. Then, once you know that, you have to keep an eye out for, you know, they're digitally acquired, uh, the kind of merchandise they bought, and that's what modeling can do for you. Keep an eye on many, many variables. We also looked at the impact of the lockdown, and we actually created geodemographic variables specifically for unemployment rates before and after the pandemic. If your modeling company does that kind of work, you might think they're worth keeping around. Anyway, so shifting product ad adaptation. Anyway, this is just wonderful stuff. I highly recommend it, and like I said, it's a little a little advanced, but um, you might try my book. I understand it's out of print at Amazon. We're have to going to revise it again, the third edition, um, but you still can get the Kindle version. And I'm working on the third edition now. So anyway, have test strategies. Always test new segments, and always try to spot the anomalies. That's where the biggest impact of modeling occurs. Thank you, Stephen. Bye-bye.